Hi, and welcome to the Design Systems Podcast. This podcast is about the place where design and development overlap. We talk with experts to get their point of view about trends in design, code, and how it relates to the world around us. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Knapsack. Check us out at knapsack.cloud. If you want to get in touch with the show, ask some questions, or generally tell us what you think, go ahead and tweet us at the DSPod. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Design Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Strahl. Today, I'm here with Kevin Muldoon. Kevin's a design technologist, uh, writer, designer, a whole lot of diverse backgrounds. But most of all, Kevin is obsessed with Alexandrian patterns and how you name things. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So I'm excited to talk today because we're going to dive into one of my favorite topics. When I first started looking at building a company around the concept of design systems, one of the things I first got introduced to was Alexandrian patterns. A lot of the foundations of our industry come from this guy that back in the 1970s, his name's Christopher Alexander, he popularized a book called A Pattern Language. A Pattern Language was all about patterns in architecture, in the structures that we create and the places we live that describe common everyday things. Kevin, what's your favorite pattern from that? Well, it's it's hard to choose just one, isn't it? Because he has... (laughs) 245 patterns. An interesting thing about Christopher Alexander is that, well, you know, it's very deep. He had originally wanted to publish that same book in a three-ring binder. Why in a three-ring binder? Because he believed that other architects should be able to add their own patterns. Gotcha. So the idea of, like, how do I create something that isn't a part of this book? Exactly. So... One of the things I love most about Alexandrian patterns is they really represent a generic way of thinking about a reusable object that solves a particular problem. And the generalized format of it is a name, a context, the things you should consider first, the problem, the solution, and the things you should consider after. And I think this is a really interesting sort of idea of a pattern, a recipe, whatever you want to put inside of that context is a really great way of describing something that you can reuse over and over and over again to solve the same problem. When you think about that, I know, Kevin, you're really focused on the naming side of this. When you think about how this applies to design systems, how do you tend to think about Alexandrian patterns in your work? Uh, The Alexandrian patterns, I think what's fascinating to me about them is how they created the wiki website, because that was a direct response from a programmer called Ward Cunningham. This was a 1977 book. And in 1984, Ward Cunningham and Kent Beck, who are luminaries of object-oriented programming theories, put together a completely new paradigm on the web so that they could collect all of these patterns And that became something that if you were to go through a computer science class program, you were going to be taught these patterns that these people created, but that came from Christopher Alexander. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've met Ward Cunningham a couple of times in Portland. He actually lives over in Beaverton, just kind of like across the hill from me. And back when people used to do meetups and stuff like that, we got together a couple of times. And that was actually the first time I'd ever heard about Alexandrian patterns was chatting with him. And so it's interesting to hear you bring him up. That was something I wasn't necessarily expecting. That's amazing. I would love to meet Ward and I would love to meet Kent because they literally not only changed computer science, but also introduced agile methodologies. 
Yeah, and technical debt. <laughs> that, that too, yeah. It's <laughs> my favorite. But um, <laughs> when you think about like this, right, obviously Alexandrian patterns have this broader applicable idea, not just to architecture, but to software. And when we think about this in terms of software, I think one of the interesting places that this applies really directly inside of design systems is when we think about things like theming. It's really easy to see how an Alexandrian pattern applies to a component. It's a little less of a direct line to think about how this applies to a theme. And when I think about how a pattern applies to a theme, it opens up a lot of different ideas about theming that I find really fascinating and potentially building on some of the work that Donnie D'Amato did with Mode in Place. If you haven't checked out Mode.Place, it's an absolutely wonderful site that looks at explorations of themes and modes. And it uses a lot of Alexandrian patterns to describe the way that we think about the expression of a brand or the expression of a theme inside of a digital product. And I think that one of the things that Donnie really looks at with this approach is how you think about the collections of tokens that ultimately represent the things that are our patterns inside of a theme. And so, for example, when you think about a theme that has dark mode, dark mode ultimately is not just a different color palette. It's a bunch of different ways of interacting that represents a whole set of things that you would collect and call dark mode. Likewise, like things like spacing. So if you say like cozy, compact, comfortable, spacious, if I have those, it's more than just one spacing token. It's actually a collection of things that represent that bigger object that is that attribute of that theme. And so in that way, you have this idea of a name that you can construct from this, where you could have a theme that is representative of color, primary, spacing, cozy, dark mode. And then you could also have a separate context for that that ultimately represents the place that you would use that theme. Explore with me for a second, like how you think about this approach. I love this approach. And what I think Christopher Alexander actually sort of made apparent to us is that all problems are solved within a context. And that seems to be the missing element within our profession, our discipline, our science of design systems is that, you know, just very, very high level is that let's say I go to storybook. You know, I have a whole bunch of components. What am I really looking at? And the fact is, is that I'm actually looking at a doorknob or a door or a latch or a room, but I'm not actually looking at a holistic solution. And I think where Alexandrian patterns can really revolutionize how we do this, which is what actually revolutionized object-oriented programming is that we consider from a higher level and then dive deeper and then dive higher. So give me an example of how this would work. Is this representative of like, okay, so I define a theme in some base system, then what happens? Right. And so we're thinking about themes and even sub-themes, you know, like a sub-brand within a brand. And my suspicion right now, because I'm very much into game dynamics and design to express complicated ideas is that we need a little playground to actually experiment and actually find the boundary points to actually say, yeah, this is a pattern that is eternal and truthful and expresses that quality of 
what Christopher Alexander would call the quality without a name. I'd like to say the name Quan, Q-W-A-N. Does it have Quan, which is that aliveness, or does it not? And that's a very difficult concept, but it really kind of is sort of the difference between health and unhealthiness. Well, I think this is the trap that a lot of teams fall into, too, is the idea that if I have multiple products or I have lots of different expressions of different brands, so I guess whether you're not you're a branded house or a house of brands, the defining trait of a theme is usually tokens, and those are usually defined centrally. And what happens in that is you end up with this sort of samey feel despite a diversity of product and a diversity of potentially brand. And so in that representation, things fall down. And the reason why things fall down is because oftentimes that Quan that you're seeking isn't able to be really defined centrally. It needs to actually be pushed closer to that last mile of the creation of product. And so you know, systems of systems are becoming really popular. We've talked about this on this podcast a lot. Even if you're not at a point in your design system journey where you're thinking about systems of systems, at least thinking about the definition of theme beyond a base set of tokens is really important because, you know, we've even gone so far to say at Knapsack is like your defining central theme in your system should be a grayscale color palette with the most boring spacing, like the most boring thing possible so you can immediately recognize it and know that when you're actually implementing that theme, you need to override or change all those values so you actually have something that is really like healthy. Or maybe a nice hot pink so it just totally stands out to you and it says it's not defined. Well, Mattel has a design system and there is Barbie, but like I, I get what you're <laughs> saying, right? Like the idea of like, how do I easily recognize that I have something here that is representative of a structure, of a pattern, but not actually of the implementation of that pattern? And I think that this is like the really key difference here, right? Is that if you're defining your themes centrally and you're then pushing that out to a bunch of different products, if those products don't have a ton of diversity or those brands don't have a ton of diversity, fine. But if you need that extra fragmentation, that extra bit of diversity, saying like, let's make it so that our base theme is just defining what the theme construct is, but then actually like saying what those values are, that happens in those subsystems. So like, I think a concrete example of this you know, you work in the news business, right? And so when you think about like the news brands that you have, there's lots of different audiences that those different news brands solve. And so you'd have that core central theme that would be this construct that is basically like, in order to have a theme, I need A and B and C. But then when I actually go and apply that, you would have differences. Like what would some of those different themes look like? Yeah, and it's multi-layered because, you know, I work at Dow Jones. I'm a design technologist for Dow Jones. Our flagship product, of course, is, you know, the Wall Street Journal. But there's Barron's, there's Market Watch, there's many, many different brands, and even a pure B2B brands where if you have a subscription, you can get this fantastic dashboard of information to make, you know, financial decisions for your company. But there's also sub-brands within those. So our model right now, and I think it has to persist, or I haven't figured out a better way to do that, is one of inheritance. So for instance, we have a primary color, we have a system color, an info color, the neutral palettes and all that, which is inherited into 
a more contextual or what many people call the semantic layer of color tokens. So where we can lift up from that tier one and then format that exactly as each brand wants to do and then override for the subbrands. That has been very successful and we leverage from an open source design system called Newskit. And you're probably familiar with many of those people. That has been very successful for us. So when you think about that definition of that sub-brand and that override system, what are you actually overriding? Are you overriding at the token level or are you taking something at a more like theme level and a bunch of theme attributes and overriding them? I would consider them one and the same. I'd like to hear about what might be the difference in your mind right now. So when you think about something like spacing, right? So I have a set of spacing tokens, and that set of spacing tokens could represent compact spacing. That's more than just a couple of different dimensions or the space between objects. There's a lot of things that involve typography, padding, shadow spacing, all these different things that represent a set of tokens that define space. And I think that that's kind of an interesting idea about like, hey, look, we have an attribute of spacing for our theme that is cozy, compact, comfortable. What I'm really defining by that is a set of tokens that represent that particular attribute value. And if I were to add another one, say comfortable, now all of a sudden what I need is I need to also tell the people that are implementing that theme, there's you know two to five tokens that you need to specify in order to now use a spacious theme. And so that's kind of what I think about is like the token level gets really, really complicated really, really quick when you're like, here's this systems of overrides for hundreds of tokens. And, you know, we've seen design systems with tens of thousands of tokens. And those tens of thousands of tokens become this rather unwieldy thing unless you're able to group them. And then I think that where you go from there is you give them context. But I think that what you're describing with NewsKit is a lot of the paradigm that people are working within, right? Is like you have this idea of this base thing that represents like color red, right? And then you have a semantic layer on top of that that is color primary. And I know Dow isn't red, but anyway, same idea, right? But now like taking that one level further to add another level of abstraction is like palette primary. And palette primary has all of these different color values associated with it and all of these different ways that you could use that color in a context. Yes. I'm really glad you said that because NewsKit certainly has like the concept of this is a blue, this is a red, this is a green. And it's something that I've been advocating for years. Don't call those blues and greens and reds and fuchsias. That leads to madness, most especially within a uh, multi-brand system. That is is too definitive. What you want to do is actually imbue intention at that very base layer. And that is one of the things that we brought to NewsKit. And that's what we use today. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, right? Because the way that we have to define tokens kind of works, in my opinion, in three conceptual models. There is the idea of references. There's the idea of collections. And then there's the idea of context or modes as Figma calls it, right? And so when you think about references, you want to be able to say, 
that thing is red because it looks <laughs> red. And so then you want to be able to reference that as color primary because that is what gives it like semantic meaning. And then you want to be able to say like, I have, you know, at least two colors because if a site was all one color, it probably wouldn't be very usable. I have a couple of colors that then represent a collection, which is my primary palette. And then that palette can change based upon the context. For example, I'm using my primary palette in the main body of my website, but I've changed that to be a breaking news palette in a particular part of my website that represents breaking news. And so that sort of cascade, we talk all the time about like, all right, you know, you have your foundational colors, you have your semantic palette, you have all this other stuff like that. We talk about the same stuff in spacing. We talk about the same stuff in typography. We talk about the same stuff in shadows and animation and all this other stuff like that, right? But the reality is, is to me, the actual what it is matters a lot less if you have the ability to reference things, build collections around them, and then apply a context to it. No doubt. Absolutely. But this kind of becomes a programming sort of exercise is that where is your separation of concerns and all those different levels? What is responsible for what? I suspect that we could really button that up in a very short amount of time. It's all a matter of agreement. Maybe one example is that, you know, I've seen some design systems that actually have a light mode and a dark mode palette, and that's completely accepted as a totally fine thing to do. That's a tier one concept. I do believe that should be like not there, but rather in the tier two where we actually give that greater context of, you know, how does this color behave in the dark mode, in the light mode? Yeah, exactly. And I think that there's then the ability to stack these things on top of each other, right? Like you could say, I want to have a theme and that theme is color dark mode primary. It's spacing cozy and it's icon set primary brand. And <laughs> that would then represent the name of a theme. And then that applies a bunch of different sets of tokens. So rather than defining those, you know, probably mentioned about 100 tokens right there, rather than defining all those hundreds of tokens, you define it as a theme that represents a bunch of things that end up showing up by collection or reference that ultimately represent how that expression happens. And then I think further, like taking it one step more, you could basically say like, I want to have some portion of the page, some component or region, like a footer or like a sidebar that you're able to specify a different theme for that particular part or that particular context in page. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that. And it seems like Alexander Patterns could you know point to a way to actually create a holistic definition of how do you approach the solution right and i think a theme is one of the patterns because that theme has a name it has a context it has a bunch of things you should consider like the various collections of tokens or composite tokens that make it up it solves a particular problem and that it also has a bunch of other things that you should consider along the way I do believe that we are actually following in the footsteps or standing on the shoulders of giants. And this happened back in 1977, which was picked <laughs> up in 1987 by a completely different discipline. And one thing I sort of rail against and am fascinated by, it's almost a social experiment, 
It's like, well, why do we have like a billion design systems out there? Right. Like, why don't we have like one set of componentry that is broadly acceptable <laughs> as like the date picker to pick on Brad Frost's favorite one? I mean, I think that this stuff is starting to exist right now. Like you have a bunch of big open source design systems that are out there kind of leading the way. And a few other folks that are trying to build these baseline ideas of like, this is what modern design really looks like. But I think that there's a lot of companies that still consider this to be pretty proprietary stuff. Um, And I think that's funny, right? And I mean, like, look, NewsKit isn't an interesting place itself because NewsKit is broadly used for, for News Corp. And like, yeah, it's open source and anybody could go pick up and use it. But I think that it's largely adopted by the brands within within news. Absolutely. Yes. I love NewsKit and I'm very close to many of the people who were pushing those boundaries, but it's quite localized, isn't it? It's like, why couldn't I pick up material design and just, you know, pop that into anywhere or NewsKit or anything else? And those are really good questions that we could answer that could guide us into a more holistic way to approach what I do believe is a science and it is becoming a science. And I suspect if we work together as a community, 10 years from now, any designer coming out of a university will have these basis, much like any computer scientist actually knows design patterns, which came from Alexander. Yeah, I think so too. I think that there's going to be a change in the way we educate designers around this stuff. And to your point about this idea of why isn't there some central component repository, right? And it's funny, I was talking to somebody about this just a couple of weeks ago. I think that there's this balance between the creation of components and composability that is a real challenge in the industry right now. And so when I think about composability, like what I mean by that is I can build really complex things using really, really small bits. We've become good in the land of design systems at creating the really small things. But what's become a lot harder for us is creating the more complex things because you end up with cockpits, you know, 400 different switches for a component. You see props lists that are like 80 props long. And that's really confusing for people without knowing the flight manual. How am I ever supposed to use this thing? Right. And so, (laughs) you know, pushing back against that challenge is hard. And the pushback that I see that's easiest is creating a bunch of composable bits that you then have recipes that make those more complex things. Now, there's a balance to be struck here, right? And this goes back to like fundamentals of design systems, like Alec Komatova's design systems book about how many of your patterns are integrated versus modular. Like modularity is a highly composable concept, but oftentimes those integrated patterns are what you actually want in that last mile for your product. Because I have one product over here that has very different needs than this other product over here. And composability and the ability to create recipes to construct those more complex patterns is one, I think, really concrete way of solving this issue. I absolutely agree. Did you watch that reboot of Battlestar Galactica with the Cylons and all that? Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. I, um, my, my roommate sat me down a couple of years ago, like a decade ago now, gosh, and forced <laughs> me to watch it. And you might remember those Cylons was sort of as almost as mantra would say, everything that has happened before will happen again. I feel that we're exactly there and we're rediscovering the methods to solve for this problem. So for instance, you know, a lot of the design patterns for software 
was really solving for a new paradigm of how to program, which is object-oriented, which was a response against procedural. Today, we are mostly leaning towards functional programming. The analogy that I think is like Brad Frost, thank God for Brad Frost, but he was expressing an object-oriented way to create components. But I think in that paradigm, we need those patterns. And I'm not certain we could actually do that functionally in that new, new, new paradigm. Yeah, no, I think there's a bunch of these big questions that are sort of looming right now, right? And I'm old enough to remember when the web shifted from procedural programming to be largely object-oriented, which honestly wasn't that long ago. When I was back in college, first learning how to code, because I was originally an engineer, I was still learning procedural programming and stuff like COBOL back then. And so it has been interesting to sort of see how these waves have hit these different industries. And I think there's lots of parallels here, right? Like the entire creation of design systems reminds me of DevOps and (laughs) orchestration of infrastructure for like where we would put servers and stuff like that. It feels very samey to that. Likewise, you know, you have all these parallels between, you know, the advent of object-oriented in big software applications, then the web, and now in the world of design. Because we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to take the thing that's in our head and give it form. And that form and that thing that's in our head, that intent and that reality, we're trying to get those as close together as possible. And I think that the interesting thing is like, So like one of the big missions of Knapsack is to try to change the way people think about building digital products. It's not that far off from Figma's vision. Figma's founding vision was to eliminate the gap between imagination and reality. And hasn't that been like a vision for more than 20 years? For instance, Macromedia? Yeah, I mean, so like, why are are we all just make a Dreamweaver now, right? Uh, Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if it's exactly like that, right? I do see a world where we start to think about the web as a set of components in a list. And that list that has order and depth and a bunch of things that you can then apply to that list. And I think that design is already starting to think that way. I think that folks that have thought about this in terms of components and React and other JavaScript frameworks have thought about this for a while. But the idea is, is like what we're trying to do is we're trying to layer a bunch of things on top of each other that have an order and a depth. We can then apply attributes to those things at a different order or a different depth. And that is ultimately like the foundations of how we think about the the construction of the web. And that's a really fascinating concept because there's just so many places to go with that to describe pretty much every experience that we see on the internet today. You know, the 14-year-old kid in Dallas, Texas, wanted to be a designer a very famous designer. And then you find heroes. And one of my heroes, and I think it should be everyone's, is Massimo Vignelli. He created the Macy's branding, American Airlines. He created the subway signage. But what he was really doing is actually he would create a system. He would create his own design system for this project. And then he would adhere to it so tightly. And it was just created something beautiful to me. It's that underlying principles of framework and patterns to me is something that not only allows us beautiful, you know, designs, but 
also to be able to scale that to people that maybe not as deeply, you know, involved in all the details. Not everybody has to be, and it shouldn't be. It should be democratized. I love that it came back to that. That democratization of that creative process, I think that that's what really fundamentally we're all going for. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks for being on the show, Kevin. I really appreciate you. This has been the Design Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Strahl. Have a great day, everyone. That's all for today. This has been another episode of the Design Systems Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or a topic you'd like to know more about, find us on Twitter at the DSPod. We'd love to hear from you with show ideas, recommendations, questions, or comments. As always, this pod is brought to you by Knapsack. You can check us out at knapsack.cloud. Have a great day.